Greetings and salutations. You're listening to This Ends at Prom, a podcast where I, teen movie apologist BJ Colangelo, show my wife, Harmony Colangelo, a seminal teen girl movie that I missed out on because I grew up as a teen boy. Is today's movie truly emblematic of womanhood? Or of rose-colored nostalgia glasses or your perspective? Circle yes, no, or maybe to find out if we're crowning a queen? Or if we're killing the teen dream. Welcome to This Ends at Prom. This Ends at Prom is a Pod People production. I don't wanna be your merch girl. I wanna be your goddamn idol. And I don't wanna have to work twice as hard for the same motherfucking title. But I. Welcome back, prom party. Well, hello. Happy April, everyone, because we're recording this in March, but it will come out in April. It's fine. No, don't break the illusion. (laughs) We record this the day it comes out. Oh, of course. (laughs) Topical. It's it's live. It just happens to be beautifully edited and inserted with clips. (laughs) Well, friends, y'all have been asking uh, for a bit for another animated film, and one recently came out that... I am absolutely obsessed with and very insufferable about with how much I am obsessed with this movie. Uh, You're not the only one. There's a lot of people who are very obsessed with this movie, and we have had multiple messages going, hey, this ends at prom. When are you going to cover Turning Red? (laughs) And every time I've been like, yeah, just wait for our schedule to come out next month. I I think you'll be pleased about it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So yes, we are talking about Turning Red, a movie that we both loved. I mean, I don't want to speak for you, Harmony. I assumed you liked it. I hated it. Oh, yeah. I'm sure you did. Oh, I abs- The worst. Uh, <laughs> uh. I mean, we'll absolutely get into those types of people because there are certainly a lot that really don't like this movie, and those people are fools. I was never a 13-year-old girl. That means I don't understand it. <laughs> uh. But we are not alone today, friends. We have somebody with us today, and I am so excited. So first off, she's like kind of my boss, full disclosure. Let's just get that out of the way. But we have one of the editors of Slash Film, writer at Slash Film, co-host of the Trekking Through Time and Space podcast. We have Hoi-chan Bui. Hi. Hi. Hey, everyone. Thanks for having me on, guys. Well, it was one of those things where it was like, we could do this by ourselves, or we could have somebody who, you know, had their review of the movie used in like TV spots and stuff for this. Yeah. And they only misspelled my name once. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, you know what, though? That's better than like all the emails I get that are like, Mr. Colangelo. And I'm like, that is not correct. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, you are the groom on our marriage license. That is true, because Ohio's paperwork is bogus as hell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we're really happy to have you here and really excited to talk to you about this movie. Um, this is one that the second I knew it existed, I was very, very hype about. And then I was very fortunate to do some of the press day screenings for, like, for Slash Film. So all of y'all can check out the writing that I've done. I've also posted a lot of it to Instagram. Um, got to interview the director, Domi Shi, who I, at this point, um, I think I would die for. Um, I, like, have really thought about it. I was like, I think 
Domi might have been added to my list of directors that I would die for in addition to like John Carpenter and John Waters. Um, Cause I just, I love everything that she does. She's a wonderful person to talk to. Um, but I obviously loved the movie, but Hoi Chan, how do you like feel about this movie in your own words? I don't think I've ever been more seen by a movie than I have been by turning red. Um, this is a movie that I absolutely adore. I was already stoked for it as well because I love Domi Shi's short film Bao, which played, uh, which was the first Pixar short film that was directed by a woman um, and was just incredibly uh, pointed and moving and profound and beautiful. I cried and I was excited to see what she would do with her first feature film. And I was bowled over by this movie, which uh, featured everything about my own childhood, just turned up to 11 and into a beautiful and hilarious and zany Pixar movie, one that takes its cues from anime and my life. (laughs) So um, yeah, as an Asian girl who grew up uh, in the 90s and loved boy bands and loved anime and definitely doodled badly (laughs) over their crushes. This was a movie made for me and specifically for me and no one else. (laughs) Oh, I love that so much. Um, So before we dive really deeply into Turning Red, it is time for everyone's favorite segment. Welcome to the morning announcements. As a reminder, you can support the show on Patreon, patreon.com backslash this ends at prom. Over at our Patreon, we offer things like our schedule ahead of time, wonderful playlists curated by Harmony, our Sadie Hawkins dance episodes focusing on teen boy movies, and we are currently going through our TV homecoming series through Pen15. We offer a free bonus episode every month for our subscribers at only $1. If now is not the right time to support financially, we totally understand. All we ask is that if you love the show, you send us to a friend, you give us a five-star review wherever it is you get your podcasts, and you tag us on social media, hashtag thisendsatprom or at thisendsatprom. All right, so for anyone out there who has not seen Turning Red, which I, this is one of the most easily accessible films. This is not some like 1980s, you've got to dig through some illegal weird site to get your hands on it. This is on Disney Plus, my friends. You can watch this whenever you want. Um, But for those who have not seen Turning Red, what would you say this movie is about? This movie is about your period. (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, Turning Red is about a 13-year-old Chinese-Canadian girl named Mei Li who does what she wants and say what she says what she wants, uh, except around her mother, who she reveres and adores and will basically turn into a very obedient girl around. Um, and she tries to sort of juggle this double life of being this preteen girl with uh, lots of budding uh, anxieties loves and passions with being a good daughter and this all kind of comes to a head when she uh, develops a crush on the convenience store boy next door her mother finds out she is embarrassed to high hell and this sparks an ancient curse within her family in which she turns into a giant red panda whenever she has a particularly strong emotion uh, which of course 
throws a wrench in her plans to see the boy band Four Town that she loves alongside her three friends and they have been dying to go except now she turns into a giant panda and that kind of puts a, a damper on things but um she ends up figuring out how to use this curse as a sort of blessing and to rely on her friends and family and figure out her own identity for herself uh, throughout the course of this lovely hilarious beautiful film beautiful i think that's perfect that's such a concise and wonderful way to kind of encapsulate everything that's going on in this movie um so normally around this time we would talk about like context of when it came out the time period and i mean it came out now so we don't need to tell people what's going on in the world of 2022 i think you all know but this is a particularly interesting time right now for disney and pixar because oh it's spicy oh my goodness and it feels like it's never ending and it changes every day so i want to say before i go into this like full disclosure things might even be different by the time this comes out but uh, as it stands disney got into some pretty serious hot water by not speaking out against HB 1557 also known as the don't say gay bill um CEO Bob Chapik tried to defend it. It backfired horribly. Um, it was pretty bad. There has been walkouts. There's been protests. There's been calls for boycotts. There's a lot of stuff going on. Um, as of right now, as it stands, Disney has halted their political funding. So there is that. Um, we recently learned that they reinstated a same-sex kiss in the upcoming Lightyear movie. So it looks like there are some tangible changes happening, but how far they're going to be willing to go go that well, there's no way for us to predict that it's the news has been changing every single day on that situation but it is important to bring up that as as kind of the the cultural landscape of when this movie is coming out because turning red is also one of the most progressive <laughs> movies like that i think has ever come out of like the family friendly disney umbrella mm -hmm. so to speak so harmony i'm gonna ask you like what are some things that you saw in turning red that you're like i've never seen that in like a pixar movie before uh i mean the obvious one and the one that everyone is like throwing a huge fit I, I shouldn't say everyone we'll say some more uh conservative minds are throwing a fit about is that sandra o's character as may's mom she is a she talks about periods mm -hmm. and that is apparently not appropriate for a family friendly film heaven forbid we discuss biological functions that exist in the world Heaven forbid there be a misunderstanding about what her daughter says when she says she's a gross big red monster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's definitely been a big part of it. And there's like smaller things that kind of like took me off guard. Obviously, the period thing is probably the most obvious. Yeah, and it and, happens within like the first 10 minutes of the movie. And it's so, so normalized and yeah. like it's not stigmatized at all. But then there are moments like at one point, you know, Abby says, oh, my mom called that stripper music. But what's wrong with that? And I was like, I, whoa, stripper music. Mm -hmm. And like, obviously, I'm very okay with normalizing all of these things. But knowing that it came from a Pixar movie was you kind of get dog-eared about it. You're like, whoa, oh, I was not anticipating that. Um, Hoi Chan, was there anything else that you noticed that you're like, whoa, that's a big move for Pixar? Well, I think the biggest one for me was the depiction of female desire. Oh, yeah. In a coming-of-age movie 
in a Pixar film. Because female desire has always been kind of a big hot button issue, even in like live action films and especially in coming of age films. Because that strange time between childhood and teendom for women, there's never been sort of like that, you know, that in-between phase. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're either like a child or you immediately go into the euphoria phase. (laughs) There's no like figuring it out in between. And it's almost um, like something that isn't allowed to be, um, you know, covered. It's it's like a – I feel like there's so much defensiveness around – young girls especially, and mm-hmm. and their sexuality and their budding sexuality mm-hmm. that people will immediately jump onto, oh, this is you know, pedophilia or whatever. But this is girls trying to come to terms with their own desires and what their own passion is. And I think that's so revolutionary for a Pixar film, for a family-friendly film, in showing it through the lens, through the POV of young girls is, for me, the biggest like revolutionary thing of turning red. Oh, definitely. Like the way BJ was pitching this movie to me, it was just like, okay, um, for real, this movie is kind of like really horny. And I was like, what? And it's like, she has urges. She has some interest in some men. She maybe draws some fairly innocent smut. I'm like, this all sounds like I have to see this to believe it. I don't know know if I believe you that there is like, like innocent budding lust in a Pixar movie. And lo and behold, there is. Yeah, in the form of mermen, which I think is so very funny. And I asked uh, Domishi about it, and I was like, obviously, we're a little early for like the Twilight werewolf and vampire craze, so why the mermen? And one of the reasons she gave me, which I thought was so perfect for a 13-year-old, is that her desire ends at the waist. So like <laughs> she draws, you know, abs on Devin and when she imagines his muscly shoulders. Yeah, his muscly shoulders. And when she's imagining uh Robert from Four Town as a mermaid, like he's, you know, he's got his full mermaid tail. And I was like, no, that makes a lot of sense though. Like that a 13-year-old your desire kind of ends at the waist because I think once you go a little lower I think your brain even checks and you're like oh no that's too far <laughs> but like shirtless like buff guy with abs like that makes a little bit more sense for someone like me <laughs> yeah and it kind of goes to the whole idea of why boy bands are so popular amongst young girls because they're seen as non-threatening um sort of things to be desired uh which is a very exciting thing as a preteen teen girl because this is something that you're coming to terms with and I think that like the idea of non-threatening sexuality is something that uh, is not really covered it shouldn't be like something that's so taboo on um, the big screen either because in movies I feel like a lot of female characters are made to either be desired over or to be idealized and to see this is just really exciting Mm -hmm. I agree completely and While we're, you know, picking out little pieces of it, I want to talk about specifically May, like Maylin Lee and like why she is such an amazing protagonist. So um, Harmony, I'll start with you. Like, how do you feel about May? I think she is the every girl in a really great way. Um, I think that it's really interesting seeing like her narrate her own life at the intro of the movie Mm -hmm. being like, this is exactly who I am. I'm cool and I'm confident and I play a sick flute solo over hip hop beats and it's wonderful. And then it's, there's, there's this expectation Mm 
mm-hmm. with who she is once she gets home where it's like, ah, yes, this is not who I'm allowed to be. There's this restrictive feeling of wanting to have the freedom to be like, I want to express myself. I want to be who I want to at school. I want to have my unique interests. But there is this, uh, I, 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 I don't know. I, I feel like when parents have an idea of what their kid's going to be, then they get disappointed when it's like, you've petered off the path from what I wanted you to be. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a bummer, but that's what, what a lot of the conflict of this movie is. It's, it's about expression. It's about going against the expectations of family. I think that this is something that a lot of people have been very mad of. Uh, very, a lot of people have been very mad about because this isn't wholesome family values, just telling you to disobey your your mother and mm-hmm. possibly headbutt her in the face. But I I don't know. I just think May is a really interesting and relatable character. And I think that's one of the most mind blowing things about people who can't relate to her in some way. I don't know. It's just, that that's where I'm at. Agreed. Uh Hoi Chan, how do you feel about May? Just the character? So May, um, I love everything about this character because I love how cocky she is. Mm-hmm. And I feel like she is the perfect depiction of that second gen immigrant character in that she is both representative of that kind of no, di- diaspora identity of being a little bit more independent, of being a little bit arrogant, of you know having her own wants and needs, and um, things that are a bit more sort of in line with capitalism and uh, secularism or whatever, like the material things. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, she has this other side to her, um, which is completely in reverence of her parents and her culture, and. What I love about Turning Red is that the depiction of the parental and familiar pressures isn't isn't seen as something that's um you know negative. She mm-hmm. does love her family. She does love working at the temple and she absolutely respects and admires her mom. And that's something that is really very much hammered into you as an Asian American, Asian diaspora person. You learn and grow up to respect your parents, respect your your family and ancestors. And that's not something that is seen as like a negative thing unless like you have a lot of issues, which I'm sure other people do have and like have a lot of their own sort of experiences growing up. But for me, I've always been very comfortable having that side-by-side experience of I respect my parents, I listen to what they say. And um, if, you know, what they, if they don't want me to do something, then I'll maybe grumble about it, but I will still like, you know, respect that. Um, But at the same time, having my own, you know, experience outside of the family. And May's whole journey of kind of trying to bring these two sides together and figure out how to do both uh, and is just something that I found so extremely specific and refreshing and something that only an Asian diaspora person could depict. And I really, really love that May's mother is not depicted as a tiger mom. And that's something mm-hmm. that, you know, uh, I really hate that term because it's, it, it stems from so much stereotype of the um, hardened, steely Asian woman, um, which is the the two types of depictions that you have of Asian women in cinema for the past, you know, 100 years. It's the tiger mom or the tiger lady or the the lily flower, the, mm-hmm. the submissive, you know, mm-hmm. Um, women who is you know as exoticized and both of them both of those depictions are totally done away with 
in this movie. May is neither of those things. May's mother is neither of those things. And while people might, you know, shallowly take away the idea that May's mom is a tiger mom, that's not the case at all. She only has, comes from her own experiences with her mother and is bringing that to her, um, raising her child. And I, I found that so just refreshing and novel to see. And uh, again, something that I really very much saw of myself on the screen. <laughs> so I, I really like that whole coming of age um, and coming of culture with, within May that um, is just a, another wonderful facet of Turning Red. Absolutely. And there's two points that I want to bring up that both of you kind of touched on. So like the cockiness of May, I love so much because she's also cocky, but she's like not the most popular girl in school. And typically in these sorts of movies, anything that's a coming of age story or a high school or middle school story, the person who is unquestionably confident is usually like the popular girl in school. And May's mm-hmm. not. She just has kind of her group of friends and she's like kind of dorky. You know, she really, really likes band and she likes math and she likes French class and these things that we typically associate with like more of a nerdier interest. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's just as confident. Like she isn't some like, oh, I'm just a bookworm and no one likes me and is like down on herself the way that we normally see in a lot of these coming of age stories. She's like, yeah, no, I know who I am. And if you don't like it, that's your problem. Mm-hmm. And I think that is so groundbreaking to see in a movie where you can be confident in yourself and not be like the queen bee of school. And we don't see that very often. So that's really, really important. And then yeah. uh, I just want to interject because yeah, I, of course. I feel like we're seeing this a little bit more with Asian characters in media because this is somewhat similar to uh, Never Have I Ever mm-hmm. and Davy's character who is also a big nerd and she's not popular, but she's really cocky too. And she's proud of being a nerd just like May is. And that's just a really exciting innovation that we're seeing in 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 media these days. Absolutely. And I think that it's because we're finally allowing uh, stories about girls to exist outside of archetypal characters, uh-huh. um, which is just really, really exciting. Um, and then the point that you brought up about the fact that Ming is not a tiger mom. So when the little teasers first started getting released and kind of the language that Pixar was using – They put so much emphasis on, you know, Ming is this overbearing mother. And like that is the main conflict is like this overbearing mother. And the first teaser that they released was um, Ming showing up at school and kind of like spying on May. We learn once we see the movie that it's her giving her her pads and, you know, embarrassing her in front of everybody. But we don't get that made me that made me speaking of turning red, that made me turn bright red. I thought, (laughs) oh, God. Just the secondhand embarrassment you have for this poor girl. You're like, I know. Oh, no. I can feel every every tiny bit of, of embarrassment <laughs> that she had. Oh my gosh. But like that was such like the stress. So I fully went into watching Turning Red for the first time thinking, oh, this is going to be the conflict is that it is going to be, you know, the tiger mom versus like the, you know, second generation kid. Oh, I know this story. And then when it wasn't that, I was like, oh. <gasps> this is magnificent. Like it's, it's every, like it took all of the things that you assume that you're going to get out of this sort of story. But when you, when you watch it, it, it's not that it's, it's well-rounded and it's nuanced. And I think you're absolutely right. Like it is so like painfully obvious that this came 
from somebody like Domiche and Julia Cho and like the crew of people that put this together are speaking from their lived experience. This is not like random hired gun white person mm-hmm. telling a story. And it's it, like this is such a neon sign for like this is why people should be allowed to tell their own stories. Absolutely. It really is. I, the thing that I think is so interesting about even just like this, like we've just kind of gotten into this conversation. We're like, what, 20 minutes into this yeah, episode? Yeah, about that. So the thing that I love that I find so interesting is that I have seen a lot of people online. Like I just keep referencing the, the, the reception to this movie because it is something. It's maddening. <laughs> it's, God, it's terrible. Not, not the movie or the reception, just people suck. Um, some people, the white people, have been saying, isn't this movie a little stereotypical that there's, like, a, ter- a traditional, like, temple and everything like that? I'm like, dude, no. Like, at what point is someone's actual life and depicting, like, as- aspects of their life allowed to just be itself and not a stereotype? Like, wh- where have you gotten the wires crossed that you can't differentiate these two things? Yeah, just because this is a, a set in Canada and it depicts a Chinese family doesn't mean that they can they have to completely erase all cultural connections. Mm-hmm. I regularly went to my family's temple every. I didn't ha- raise, I didn't live in a temple, but we went to a temple every like couple months, and that was definitely a part of my upbringing, in my childhood. So that's something that you know maybe it's a stereotype, but whatever. I don't even think of it as just a stereotype. It's just a facet of life for some exactly. people. Like right. what, like in the same way that like, I don't know, I'm a dopey white person and I grew up Lutheran and Catholic, but I have plenty of friends who didn't go to church. And it's like, oh, well, it's isn't it really stereotypical to have these white people go to church? I'm like, what? <laughs> I don't know. Like, that's just a thing that you do or you don't do. And it's especially interesting because... Domi has been very open about the fact that she did live at a temple when she was little. Her grandparents ran it. So I don't know. I I get very frustrated where I see I, I try to be as like full person about this conversation as possible, like meeting people where they're at, right? Because mm-hmm. people you don't know what you don't know. So I understand why somebody's instinct might be to question like, oh, well, isn't this stereotypical, what have you. And for me, I think it just goes back to like, well, who is the person that's creating it? Yeah. Because this is so clearly being written from the perspective of a lived experience that it doesn't have a lot of the stereotypical traits that you would normally see. And the the best example is Ming because Ming is not a tiger mom. So it's mm-hmm. like already we know that we're not living in this stereotypical world. We're living in a very well-rounded version of 2002 Toronto. And I think that that's, that's another thing too. Toronto is an incredibly diverse city. Um, I've seen people online that have been complaining like, oh, why are there so many people wearing hijabs? Or I saw all of these different races and that just feels quote unquote, like shoved in wokeness. And it's like, have you been to Toronto's very diverse? Like this would be the same as any sort, any sort of like major metropolitan city. You should be showing that diversity off because that is the reality of of people that are living there. Mm-hmm. That's not like forced wokeness. That's what it is. And it's always just very interesting how quickly people are willing to tell on themselves, I think, when they make these criticisms of these movies. 
Um, but that's just, I guess, my perspective. Mm-hmm. Wow. I didn't even know about half of these criticisms, and that makes me very angry. I, I'm sorry that we have had to be, I'm sorry we've had to introduce you to these. Well, <laughs> they haven't the been thing, fun. One thing I feel like a lot of these people are coming from, uh, one of the reasons that they're coming from the wrong, totally wrong direction is that I think that uh, a lot of people are so used to seeing this kind of story uh, from their own perspective. It's from mm-hmm. a, an angle of like this kind of culture, this kind of story being exoticized or even just uh, idealized. That idea of, uh, you know, a Chinese Canadian family, uh, we don't really see that from the POV and from the actual experience of a Chinese Canadian director, a, a girl coming of age, we don't usually see that from a female director. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll, for the past like, 20 years we'll see like a white director directing memoirs of a geisha which also was written by a white person and it's all like through these different filters and lenses that again just make these seem more exotic and distant and something to be almost leered at um Mm -hmm. instead of you know actually being in this in the shoes of ming and and mei li it's just something that's so so alien to them not actually being that perspective that of course they're lashing out Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. absolutely something that i read a million years ago and i don't remember who said it so if anyone knows who it is feel free to you know reply to us on social media but there's this idea of if you are marginalized in any way shape or form either by your your race, your ethnicity, your religion, your gender, your sexuality, what have you, your your ability status. Um, if you are marginalized in any way, it's like knowing how to speak another language. And while obviously it's never a one-to-one comparison between like different marginalized identities, if you already know how to speak a different language, then you know how to like pick up on the cues to like learn another language or to mm-hmm. learn somebody else's communication. So like while obviously I have never been uh, an Asian person because I am painfully Italian and very white, mm-hmm. um, but I, you know, I am a woman <laughs> and I am a queer woman. So I'm able to sort of pick up on the things that are similar and the things that are the things that are different because the overwhelming majority I have seen of people who have been complaining about this movie and saying they don't identify with it or they can't relate or they, you know, in a lot of cases, they can't even empathize have been cis, straight, white men. Um, where, you know, all of film for the last 100 years has been catered to their POV and their story, and now something is not. And because they've never learned how to, like, headcanon themselves into something or to find themselves in something where they may not necessarily be, um, they're showing that they're incapable of doing so Mm -hmm. um, in watching a movie like this because this movie resonated with me so deeply in ways that I was not anticipating, despite the fact that I don't have, obviously, the one-to-one lived experience, but, like, I do know what it's like to be out at school and then to go home and not be out. Um, I know what it's like to go through puberty and not know what it is, because I got my period and I was nine, and, like, the moment when May, you know, dis- discovers her panda and comes home and her dad, Jin, who is, like, the unsung hero of this movie. I love him oh, so much. Wonderful. What a great dad. Um, but he goes, oh, no, did this happen already? 
That is like almost verbatim what happened to me because I got my period when I was nine and my mom came to pick me up at school and I was like mortified and she goes, I thought I had more time. (laughs) And I like looked at her and I was like, you knew. (laughs) Like I was so mortified. (laughs) So seeing May like have that same response of like, what did you say? I'm like, girl, I see you. That shit sucks. (laughs) It's the worst feeling. Not only of like this horrible change is happening, but they knew it was coming and they didn't have the decency to warn you. (laughs) Oh, what a betrayal. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So something else that I, I would love to talk about, though, is that this movie has such an amazing and strong friendship angle Mm -hmm. like the family stuff is obviously there but the friendship is such a huge deal so uh harmony i'll start with you how do you feel about miriam uh priya and abby i think that they're very fun um something that felt weird to me and i had to ask you about this because i had i developed my own theory on it on a second rewatch of it um, where I was like, they refer to each other as like girl all the time. I'm like, BJ, in 2002, was that a thing girls did a lot where it's like, hey, I'm just going to refer to you as girl? Yeah. It, I mean, at least it was for my friends. Like we called each other girl all the time. We still do. Okay. Like we text each other and it's like, girl, I got to talk to you about something. See, like I I didn't hang out with a lot of girls in 2002, so mm-hmm. I didn't know that. But I was like, and I'm, I'm like backwards engineering it and be like, okay, well, Every boy band song is all about girl. And I'm like, so is that a part of it? I'm like, what? <laughs> like, I was just trying to like, do the science in my head. And then it was just like, oh, well, I mean, both are probably partially true. Um, I'll say that I love how, like, th- th- there's such a, coll- like, everyone has such wildly different personalities. Uh-huh. And I think that that's so fun and fascinating. Uh, like, like, for example, like, Abby is so loud that, like, you can pick her out of a crowd at the end of the movie. And that's how she finds them at the the Four Town concert. But at the same time, like, you have someone like Priya who is very subdued and not loud. And yet mm-hmm. they get along perfectly. And I think that's great. Uh, I think Miriam is, like, such a, a fun tomboy type character mm-hmm. that I don't know why Ming hates her. Like, just arbitrarily is like, mm, I don't trust her. No, she's odd. I don't like her. And then BJ's like, hey, a little secret. That character may have been supposed to be trans. And I was like, that makes so mm-hmm. much more sense now. And okay, got it. I but- also have a little sort of interjection in oh, that sort of, yes. or theory rather, because mm, this might not depict lots of Asian mothers well, but sometimes they have a suspicion of, A white friend, for example, who may represent some of the more materialistic parts or bad influences of a of, you know, a friend group, for example. Mm -hmm. And this is because they see them as like less studious, less, you know, more flighty, that kind of thing. And that I think is that's what I read into this character and just kind of like that whole cultural experience for me. Um, So that's that's my reading. But I I think it could be like lots of different things as well. I think that's a really great point to make that I think a lot of people are not considering because May's friend group, Miriam, is the only white friend she has because mm-hmm. Abby's Korean, Priya, I don't think they identify what it is, but she's definitely not white. And obviously Priya is a traditionally like Indian name. Mm-hmm. Um, so May's friends are – her friend group is not white. And that, that – God, the – 
the moment where she tells Miriam, like, well, my mom doesn't like you anyway. And the look on her face is so devastating <laughs> because all the friend, the rest of the friends are trying to, like, sneak out the window. And she's like, wait, what? And it just <laughs> it just washes over her. And I feel so bad for her in that moment because I don't know how, about either of you, but I was so worried about my friend's parents not liking me growing up. And I was considered like a bad influence friend for a lot of my friends because my parents like let me dye my hair funny. And I was like really active in extracurriculars, but I also like wore fishnet (laughs) every day because I was like a little emo kid. And there were plenty of my friend's parents that I knew like thought lesser than me because of it. And I was hyper aware of that and so desperate for all of their approval. So yeah, when I see Miriam kind of have that like, but why kind of moment <laughs> like, oh, I feel so bad for you. Um, Hoi Chan, how do you feel about the the friend group as a whole? I love the friend group. I love that we have every different type of personality, sometimes mm-hmm. squeezed into a single character. Mm-hmm. And I love their just unconditional love for each other. And I love the fact that, you know, we find out that um, uh, May can – control her her emotions and control her panda when she is around her friends and i think that's such a sweet and again innovative innovative thing uh in a coming of age film where so so much of the times uh, especially in a film that would depict female desire as this it would be some sort of romance or something but mm-hmm. or even like the parents but it's the friends and i think that's so sweet and wonderful I agree completely. We talk about it a lot on the show when we get to movies that showcase friendships. And it's a weird thing in in a lot of cultures where your romantic relationships are prioritized so heavily above your friendships. And it's almost seen as like secondary where like your first big breakup is like the end of the world. But then you and your friend get in a fight, especially when it's girls, and people dismiss it as like, meh, it's not a big deal. But like friend breakups can be infinitely more painful than Mm -hmm. any sort of a romantic relationship breakup. And seeing the validity and the seriousness added to their friendship, putting it on the same level, if not higher than any of like the, the romance angles to it, because we see their desire, like they swoon over Fortown, they swoon over Devin at they the swoon Dairy over Mart. Some emo kid that I don't think has a name. Carter Murphy, hair. May Carter Murphy Mayhew. Yeah, sure. Is yeah. his name? <laughs> I only remember because it it's such like a random, like that is absolutely like random kid name. That's perfect. Wasn't the Jonathan Taylor Thomas? <laughs> right, exactly. Like all first names. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I also do love that, like when we first see that kid, it's like this slow mo, like oh swoopy hair boy. And then when we see him later at Tyler's party, he is hanging out with like the goth kids and the emo kids and I'm like oh he's definitely wearing eyeliner like that wasn't just like oh maybe this kid's like a little sleepier he's got bags under his eyes no that is intentional and that is makeup and I love that because it's <laughs> 2002 and we were starting the emo trend then this is brilliant um <laughs> but a lot of times when we have like this this desire like that does become the priority it becomes about like getting a boyfriend or having somebody like you mm-hmm. and this movie is not about that it's like yeah desire is part of growing up but it's not the only part of it and a huge part of growing up is learning to navigate like the importance of your friends yeah i i love that i love the depictions of this because Certainly for who May is, her friends are so much more valuable because they see her for who she really is and not who like her mom or like her grandma or her fantastic aunts all want her to be. 
Like mm-hmm. they have this, they they have the uh, a skewed version of her, a, mm-hmm. a, a I don't know, a, a, a cleaned version of her. Uh, she's not she's not wild. She's not loud. She's not listening to her hip hoppers music. I believe it is referred to <laughs> as. Um, so she's not being like a teen with 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 personality in the same way that she is with her friends. And I so I love that so much because. When we first learn about the panda, it it sort of tiptoed around of being like, oh, it's an inconvenience, but it's like, oh no, you're you're cursed basically. Mm-hmm. But is it really a curse if you can control it? Mm-hmm. And the reason that she's able to control it is because she has the unconditional support of her friends, and that she doesn't have that unconditional support from like most of her family, at least not initially. Like they get mm-hmm. there, but by the end, but. Mm-hmm. It, it makes it go from like, oh, it, it, it could be seen as a curse. I mean, glass half full or half empty, I suppose. But it's not an inconvenience. It's, it's an asset. This is, this is part of you and it's cool and it's beautiful and everyone loves it. And I think that's just wonderful. I think so, too. My favorite response to it is obviously Abby, who um, <laughs> freaks out. She's like, you're so fluffy. Oh, my God. And she gets like the big anime eyes with the, mm-hmm. the little stars. I love that with like the stars and like the, <laughs> the like quivering and stuff. Oh, it's so brilliant. <laughs> and obviously we have like Miriam and, and, and Priya who are being a little bit more grounded. They're like, we love it because it's part of you and it's mm-hmm. fine. But then you have Abby who is like such a 12 year old girl about it is like, well, what? Could, just give me a hit. Just give me some of that fluff. Like I would do the same. I would also bury my face into this red panda the same way I do large dogs. Exactly. Or like the same way I always want to do where it's like, oh, look at that bear. I want to go snuggle that bear. And it's like, don't. You'll get mauled. And I was like, I don't care. If that's how I go, that's how I go. <laughs> what I love about the whole red panda conceit, especially it being uh, triggered by strong emotions, is that it basically gives the Hulk um concept to a young girl oh definitely mm-hmm. and the hulk you know stems from the sort of jekyll and hyde thing this is the the creature that re- represents all of your your id your um, your repressed emotions your raw emotions the uh, fully at the front and mm-hmm. you know in the comics the hulk is often depicted as uh, a sort of tragic um you know part of bruce banner's character and here it's so fully embraced and the idea of of embracing that wild part of your wild side of your of your personality and um it being loved and accepted by others is so neat i think that's just really cool oh absolutely and i didn't even really think about it in relation to like a dr jekyll or a hulk but like yeah, that makes total sense. Absolutely. I think that's a definitely like definitely more of an accurate read where like the comparisons to this being like Carrie for kids or Ginger Snaps for kids has been pretty prominent. I view it way more as Ginger Snaps than I do Carrie. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea of it being more of the Hulk and Bruce Banner makes so much more sense because it's something that you kind of live with and it's not a full transformation mm-hmm. the way that like Carrie and uh and Ginger Snaps are we're like no that's a full transformation and you also have more control over it than mm-hmm. you do like Ginger Snaps yes and one thing I found really interesting about the Hulk I have a young little cousin who whose favorite superhero is the Hulk he's like nine years old and he loves Hulk and I think the reason that him and a lot of young kids uh connect with the Hulk is because it's about not being able to control your emotions and a lot of kids can really relate to that and you know it's it's something that is kind of a mix in terms of depiction of whether that's a good thing or not but 
in turning red, that is a good thing. It's a, mm-hmm. it's about like that emotion being a part of you. And mm-hmm. uh, I think, yeah, I'm, I'm just saying like that's neat. But it's a, it's such a novel part and concept of this, of this movie. And something that it really made me think about is, you know, so before I pivoted back into writing about film full time, I taught for a brief period of time. And I taught elementary school and I taught in a school where, you know, it's defined as being, quote unquote, a rough school. A lot of my kids had difficulty with emotional regulation. And I also came from a restorative justice and trauma-informed background. So sometimes my kids could not control their emotions. There were chairs and desks thrown and, you know, things that were really violent outbursts, like very big, big emotional Mm -hmm. outbursts. And I would tell people that and they would always ask me, like, well, did you suspend them? Did you send them to the office? And I was like, no, because they they don't have control of their emotions. Like they shouldn't be punished for not knowing how to control their emotions. That is a sign that we need to help them with emotional regulation. Like, Mm -hmm. obviously, they're going to have to make amends to their classmates for disrupting class. Like, that's part of it. That's part of that restoration. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, like, no, punitive punishment in response to, like, big emotions is not a healthy way for kids to learn to have a relationship with those emotions. And Mm -hmm. I think we do that so often with little kids where we want them, you know, even into into junior high where it's like you're being so dramatic, you're being too loud, you're being whatever, you need to be quiet. And we try to like push them down or make them feel like these emotions that you're having are a bad thing. Mm-hmm. And turning red embraces the those emotions. Like it's a good thing that May learns how to have her big emotions and to let them out mm-hmm. because bottling that up inside of you is not healthy for anybody. Like It'll result in a kaiju fight that destroys half the city. Yes. Yeah. You, mom is going to tear down the sky dome. <laughs> like, <laughs> you've got to let it out sometimes. And I think that that is such a relatively new like form of psychology and of, of you know raising children like this is very new. If you think about like just schooling in general in in the western world it's like we're producing children to like sit still, organize rows. You're you're essentially treating children to be prepared to be on a like conveyor belt. Like mm-hmm. that's what the American school system kind of is at this well, point. Yeah, that's what it was designed for. That's to yeah. prepare you for like factory work and stuff like exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. Like that's what it was for. And now we're starting to get into this new world where it's like, uh, maybe like it's fine if you sit on the floor because you have some issues with like keeping still because you you're overwhelmed and you're overstimulated and you need to spread out as long as you're getting the information like it doesn't matter how you're sitting when you get it that's fine Mm -hmm. like it's not it's it's okay or when you have these big emotions it's like hey it's not a bad thing that you're so mad that you want to throw something let's figure out how you can process being that mad without throwing something Mm -hmm. because when may explodes in the classroom for the first time like just you know goes full panda there's pink smoke everywhere. The desks are flipped over. And that was my first thought was like my students who would get so upset that they like threw something. And it's like May is so entitled to feel that big of a feeling in that moment. Mom Mm -hmm. is at school. She has embarrassed her. Now everyone knows that she is on her period. (laughs) Like (laughs) that is mortifying. I would also want to explode into pink smoke, giant panda and flip chairs. Like (laughs) what else are you going to do in that moment? Like it's, 
awful. Like that's such an awful experience. Um, so to see a movie so heavily embrace like that emotional regulation, like the importance of emotional regulation is just so groundbreaking and beautiful. And again, like why I, I will die for Domi Shi because I love her. She's so smart. It's groundbreaking too, not just in, you know, uh, psychology for uh, raising children in the Western world, but also for uh, Eastern psychology and cultures. Uh, there's a concept in a lot of Asian cultures, especially Chinese, called saving face. And it's the idea that uh, putting on a good face is and repressing everything else is the best option. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there's a lot of that depicted here. The idea of of hiding your panda, of, of pushing it into a, a totem of some kind, an item, and having that, you know, be hang on your neck literally uh is so is so ingrained in this family and for may to reject that and um for others her her family still to like go back to having those totems and having that still you know pushed deep down i think is such an interesting generational divide mm-hmm. um because saving face is very much of that old tradition and it's something that is still kind of pushed back against in other films like the farewell there's a huge concept of saving face there where they, um, the family decide to not tell the grandmother that she has cancer. And that is all about saving face because they would rather have her be happy and ignorant than to have her um, be sad and, and you know, waste away the last of her months. And it's saving face not only to the outside but within each other. And I think that is such a, a great facet of Turning Red that um, – very few people would know of and I think that Mm -hmm. the movie makes such a great homage to that and uh, um, reference to that yeah thank you so much for sharing that because something that we try our best to do on the show is like we try not to like pathologize cultures that we're not from or understand um so like obviously your input is so invaluable because (laughs) that is something like I would never have known and um it really does just add like a deepened layer to to this movie mm-hmm. that I think is is so wonderful. And it makes me think about um, this 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 whole idea that we've been seeing of the people who are saying that like this movie is is not relatable, right? And obviously that level that you just described is something that I am not familiar with. Like that's not part of my culture. But yet this movie is still so easy to empathize with I feel like so I'm curious if either of you have thoughts as to I mean in all honesty I feel like these are questions that I already have the answer to but I'd love to hear it not from my own mouth um so (laughs) why do you think it is there has been so much pushback about this story specifically when like there hasn't been pushback for really anything else that's come out but this has been a big pushback um sexism yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah, there's i mean that's what i was saying before about ev- all these audiences these white male audiences so used to seeing themselves on the screen and it's alienating to not suddenly be the center of attention uh i am uh, i am uncomfortable well, not about me <laughs> as the infamous tweet says mm-hmm. and i think that 
it's something that has been pervasive, not just through film and through motion pictures and family films like Pixar movies, but also through music is the reason why the all boy bands, the Beatles at some at one point in their career were considered lesser and sillery because teen girls embrace them and love them. Mm-hmm. And often teen girls were like the the forerunners for pop culture. They were the predictors for pop culture. They they brought the Beatles over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the fact that these <laughs> critics are so down on this movie, it's just because they're not used to seeing these female perspectives, these young preteen coming of age perspectives depicted with such honesty and unashamedness and it scares them. Yeah. And I mean, even to bring this down to like maybe more of a specific level, even if you look at a lot of Pixar films in general, they typically have male leads. Um, it is especially more recently, uh, like the last decade or so, a lot of Pixar films have become legacy sequels. Like, how much of The Incredibles 2 is not about the children? It's about how hard it is to be a parent. Mm-hmm. How much is Monsters You about how hard it is to be a college kid? How much of Toy Story, most of them, is basically <laughs> having to like let your kid go or something like that? Um, this is such a more specifically teenage or even like an adolescent coming of age story than most Pixar films are. And I think that there is also a level of uncomfortability that exists with like, People going, well, Pixar's supposed to be this. Pixar's supposed to be in this neat little box. Pixar's supposed to play by the rules. Pixar's supposed to be friendly entertainment. And I'm like, you you are the <laughs> giant outburst red panda because Pixar's not doing what you want it to be doing. And you 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 need to you need to reel that back in. You need to kind of sort yourself out because you you didn't realize that that, that you're now the problem. I think that's a really good point because some some of the other criticisms that I've been seeing, I follow pretty intently a lot of the sites that are like parental guide sites, right? Um, it I must know be we, really fun for you. It's a real fun <laughs> hobby that I developed after the Mitchells versus the Machines came out because I, I wrote a big piece about that movie and its queer representation. And the thing that I found that was so alarming was how frequently that movie was flagged for sexual content because Katie is canonically queer. She never like doesn't show it. She doesn't like kiss anybody. Mm-hmm. She just has like a pin and her mom asks about like a girl at the end of the movie, but that got flagged as like sexual content. Mm-hmm. So it was really curious to see what these parental guide sites were going to say about something like Turning Red and what I kept seeing over and over again was parents reviewing this movie and saying things like, I can't believe this movie is promoting kids sneaking out and disobeying their parents and, you know, talking back and all of these things. And they were so ruthlessly cruel about it. And then in my head, I was sitting there. I'm like, but people kind of universally love Inside Out. And that's a movie where, like, little 11-year-old Riley steals her mom's credit card and buys a bus ticket and tries to leave town. And nobody like flagged that. I went back and looked at old reviews and looked at like parental reviews on that. Nobody brought that up. So I'm just trying to figure out what is it about Turning Red that is making these parents get it, get so like huffy about it. And I, this might be like a big hot take, whatever. But I feel like just everyone's brains have kind of just short circuited a little bit in like a post-Trump world, in a in a pandemic world where 
people are so like hyper aware of these things and they're so much more like militantly angry when they see them because like there was not this kind of like parental pushback with something like Inside Out, which I feel like Riley stealing a credit card and like trying to run away is way more intense than May going to a birthday party and lying about it. But that's tragic. That's like, okay, that's good point. painted as sad. This is painted as like, look at the good time she's having by disobeying her parents. That Okay, that's I, a good point. Like, I've not seen someone point this out as a specific example, but I can't help but think about it because of how things were with my family, which like, maybe I'll touch on that story. We'll see how I'm feeling at the end of talking about this point, which is, oh, well, you could make an argument that it's May is being so disrespectful to her mother because, like, during their kaiju fight, which the whole climax of this movie is incredible, by the way. Yeah, like, it's pretty I, incredible. Pretty it's pretty much, unreal. <laughs> pretty much from, like, the ritual onward, it's an amazing climax. Mm-hmm. Um, but all of that said, like, they're having their panda fight, and obviously Ming is huge and angry. <laughs> and she, like, bites her mom and then, like, does, like, a flying skull bash right between her eyes. And I, I've i not seen anyone cite that specifically as an example. But using the, you know, assuming that people are dumb and they're mad about the simplest things because they are mad about everything else about this movie. People could be like, she hit her mother. How dare she? And I just can't help but think, like, her mother wanted to squash her like a bug. <laughs> so it's okay for parents to hit their children. But how dare they hit back? Like, that that's the thing that gets it for me. It's like... I don't believe that you should be. There should be fight where anyone should be hitting each other in anyone's families. Right. Of course I not. I grew up in a family that you know that was a thing where you know you absolutely there was corporal punishment. It was a thing. I had um I had a moment when I was probably in eighth grade where my mother reeled back to 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 slap me across the face for some fight we were having, and I had it was like it was like the end of Space Jam. Where the Monstars realize, oh, we're bigger than the Danny DeVito alien. Uh-huh. Oh, we don't have to take your shit anymore. And like, I caught her hand and she went, oh. And I just see this look of face of being like, I can't do this anymore. You're not a child. You're bigger than me. This Everything is different and this is weird. Mm-hmm. And I'm scared. And that's a really fucked up situation to be in. Mm-hmm. But I just find it so fascinating that... Assuming this argument exists, even assuming any of this stuff, there's a give and take to, like, parents and children, and I don't know, people aren't even thinking about this from the other perspective. Yeah. They're not remembering what it was like to be 13, even. Also, this movie doesn't end with Mei disrespecting Ming. No! This movie, and like, there, it does climax with the giant kaiju fight, and yes, they exchange fists or claws uh but the movie ends with all of them going through the portal and all the aunts and the grandmother Mm -hmm. uh going back to their human selves and putting their pandas back in their totems um but it ends with may finding her mother as a 13 year old girl crying and she finally connects with her and realizes that she's not just her mother she's not just an authority figure she's another human being Mm -hmm. and that's a really like beautiful and novel thing like this movie is not just about disrespecting your parents it's about realizing that they're human too and that Mm -hmm. they have they make their own mistakes and that they were in the same place as you yeah (laughs) it's about learning to have grow that empathy everyone the same as as your parents learn to grow that empathy with you and i think it's about them finally coming to an equal place with each other equal footing and accepting each other as fully 
fleshed out grown people. And that's the lesson of turning red. It's not about disrespecting your parents. People need media literacy. They have really do. So much. Like, why is that? I feel like, given how important media is at this point culturally, I sh- like, why is this not part of our curriculum? The answer is because all of it's underfunded, but still. Mm-hmm. Um, like, it's because we're putting so much money into STEM and not anything into literature or history. Mm-hmm. And that's why every six months, a tech guru will invent the public transportation system <laughs> <laughs> no but but for but for real though um i think that that is so interesting and so important because you have this interaction with her mother where you're you as an, you as the audiences are reminded like oh right every parent was a 13 year old who was upset at some point mm-hmm. like and from a character standpoint you have being reminded of like oh yeah i used to fight with my mom it wasn't always perfect between us I was also like a child that was once susceptible to outbursts and my kid is growing up and I have to start treating them like an adult. Mm-hmm. Like it's such a, there's so much happening in this exact like 60 seconds of, of this film. Like that particular moment, so much is happening. Oh yeah. I mean, because the thing about May reuniting with like 13 year old Ming in the, like the panda forest, as mm-hmm. I've been calling it in my brain, is that you have like this humongous moment of vulnerability from Ming. Mm -hmm. And we've learned previously from a beautiful conversation with her dad. Um, We are a big fan on this podcast of the trope of dad kind of swooping in in a coming-of-age film and giving you an incredible speech that you didn't know you needed. Yeah. Um, Dad, dads aren't allowed to do show a lot of feeling in most teen movies, but God damn it, if they don't have wisdom. They get great monologues, and uh, it makes a great trope. Yes, yes, the eighth grade trope. It's like one of the the few redeeming factors in Sixteen Candles <laughs> is the good dad monologue. And mm-hmm. Jin gives that great dad monologue about how, you know, this is part of you too. And it makes me laugh and it's so much fun. Um, but he talks about Ming and he's like, yeah, that's why her and, and grandma don't get along anymore is because of her panda. And, mm-hmm. you know, he was part of it because grandma didn't think that he was going to be good enough for her. Mm-hmm. And that also then, you know, puts the little bug in your in, in your ear because grandma is first off like fierce as hell. Mm-hmm. But she has like this big scar on her face and you kind of put two and two together when you see crying 13-year-old Ming, like, I hurt her. Mm -hmm. And she clearly feels so bad about it. And you're like, oh, that's where that scar came from. Oh, that, like, hurts my heart so much. But when she meets her mom and, like, she gives her the advice. And she's the one who kind of holds her hand and takes her to the portal so that, you know, she can put the the panda in her in her token but in that moment where she's the one taking her through there i think that's such a like beautiful generational moment where so frequently we forget that like kids can be just as valuable of teachers to their parents as parents can be to their kids Mm -hmm. yeah we're all learning at all stages of life Absolutely. And there's so much that we can learn from each other, too. Like, I think that a a really good example um, that's like kind of a little bit more subtle, but when the the four girls are hanging outside the Daisy Mart and they're like, we're going to go sing karaoke, you should join us. And May is like, no, I can't. It's cleaning day. I've got to go do all these things. And she leaves and then her friends immediately, like, all of their moods change. She's like, we're never going to get her back because, like, they they cannot understand 
her family or or any of those like obligations because like they're not part of that family they're not part of that world they're outsiders looking in and for most of the movie we are outsiders looking in but in that moment when may and ming are like one-to-one i feel like that's when we as the audience are able to like really be brought in and we're able to see the full circle picture because it's the first time that may is also seeing the full circle picture Mm -hmm. and i think that it's just it's so beautiful and also like Sandra Oh has been a national treasure like forever. She's Uh a global treasure. Let's be real. She's (laughs) incredible. Her performance in this is unbelievable. Oh my God. I I love. First of all, I think it's really unfortunate that most of her best known roles are for dramas because obviously she's very talented, but she has such good comedic timing in like the times where she gets to flex it. One of my favorite deliveries from Sandra Oh is in The Princess Diary. Oh, yes. yes. We, uh, when, she set, when she answers the phone and she says, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the queen is coming. Yeah. It's specifically the way she drops her voice down for certain lines. We, we see that when she discovers like the mermaid smut and she's like, oh, oh, mm, oh. And I'm like, oh my God, I love it so much. She does the same thing. Like, and it is, it's that like when she drops it low, like she doesn't get really high pitched and frantic. Like, cause you'll see it when she's talking to, to May in the bathroom and she's like, I have this for you and here's all the pads and here's all these things for you. And then when she realized that breakfast is burning, she goes, my porridge. And like it drops really, really low. Um, it's really, really funny. And that's also something that we see um, when they have the big panda fight. Like mm-hmm. she, her voice gets so big, and obviously they they modify it with some like Godzilla sounds, which is really funny. <laughs> um, but she has this like giant, like deep, boisterous voice, and I, I don't know. I think like sometimes in my head when I think about the arguments that I got in with my own mom. I think that's like the voice I used in my head for my own mom. And my mom's like a nice lady with like a soft-spoken kind of demeanor. But in my head, all I can think is my mom being like, you're grounded. It's like this huge thing. And it's like, that's not how my mom sounded. But it's definitely like the caricature I gave my mom at that age. Mm -hmm. There's just so many things at play going on at once in this movie and you know i keep coming back to this but um i really love that the relationship between may and ming is never bad from the beginning like they Mm -hmm. have they have a love and respect for each other may obviously adores her mom and wants to be everything that her mom wishes her to be and that's not necessarily a bad thing that again goes with the whole sort of Asian Chinese cultural experience growing up and revering your parents and elders and what I love about this film is that it's not about pushing away her mom but Mm -hmm. finding a new relationship Mm -hmm. one where they have grown as people have realized who they are as people and individuals and that love is still there but it's transformed oh absolutely um Like, you even see it where Ming dreads the phone call from her own mother that she gets. Mm -hmm. And it's it's obviously this clear parallel, but it's almost this cautionary tale that you, as the viewer, don't want to watch these two drift apart because, you know, May is growing up and she has a panda now. You don't want to see them fight. You don't want to see them kind of be like Ming and her mother. Mm-hmm. You you want to see them sorted out because they they do enjoy each other's company. They do get along. They they make like steam buns and watch dramas together. And they they I like them together. I as someone who does not have a good family life, as we've discussed many times on this show and also earlier in the podcast when I was just like ah yes hitting. Uh, sorry about that for anybody that made that I made uncomfortable with that. But 
I love seeing these good depictions of parents in coming of age movies because I think it's incredible to see. And also just, I never saw that enough. Mm-hmm. Um, the line that I love between these two as like a mother and daughter is like right at like in the panda forest during this big, beautiful scene that I love so much. She says like, the further you go, the prouder I'll be. Mm-hmm. And I can't help but think like I moved from Cleveland to Los Angeles and it's because I was well I mean this isn't the mo- main reason but like part of the reason is that I'm running away from my family because I don't want to deal with most of them especially my mother and she doesn't have this feeling of like you've gone far I'm proud there's this torn thing of like I may have not been a good mother to you and you ran away mm-hmm. so seeing that thing like I don't want my mother to say that we're never going to have that kind of a relationship and that's fine I came to terms with that a long time ago but just lines like that of like how it doesn't have to be like that like these these fights these problems they can be remedied they can be fixed even if you have them you can work through them if you actually care about and respect each other as people as people that you're related to as you know a mother or as like a a sibling or as offspring whatever the circumstances maybe i love that so much in this movie i'm i'm glad that you brought that line up in particular because the one that gets me is when she says like you you know you work so hard to to please everybody and you know you're so hard on yourself and if I'm the one who taught you that, then I'm sorry. Yeah. Like, that line, mm-hmm. like, knocks the wind out of me, first off. Um, but Harmony and I talked about this a little bit off mic about that line of the farther you go, the prouder I'll be. Because I have the complete opposite family life than Harmony. I have extremely supportive parents. And, you know, I grew up in Chicago, but my parents retired to Florida. And they're in South Florida. And obviously, we're in Los Angeles now. Like, we are, like as far away like as you kind of can humanly possibly be unless like we moved to Seattle or something mm-hmm. um but we're super super far away and as much as like it pains us to be so far away cuz we are a very close family my mom tells me all the time like i'm so proud you got out i'm so proud you did this like i i'm so happy that you're out there and doing what you want and you know living in a place that you know treats you well because a lot of places in this country super hate gay people um like florida which i'm never going to ever again (laughs) um so to like you know know that i have that this movie's also really made me value that relationship with my mom a lot more because I know how privileged I am to have a good relationship with my mom, especially as a queer person, where most people have awful relationships with their family. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I'm going to bring in, as the Asian on the the podcast, I'm going to bring in that uh, Asian experience again. Um, This line and those two lines in particular really resonated with me as well, because in a lot of Asian cultures, and I can't speak for everyone, and I'm sorry if I'm generalizing too much, um, there is an expectation that uh, you will uh, be close with your family and maybe even live with your family for a long extended amount of time, uh, live close to them, uh, basically be part of your their, your lives uh, for most of your life. And especially in, in China, Japan, Korea, um, in, the, in those countries, there is like an expectation to actually 
live with your family until you get married and then you actually stay in that household and the generations all live together and that kind of thing and take care of each other. And the idea of separating and uh, making your own life and setting out on your own is actually a very Western cultural thing. And I love that Turning Red brings both of those cultures together that you can still be close with your family but not grow apart. Yeah. Um, And... I think it's really wonderful and it's something that even second generation, third generation immigrant families are still trying to come to terms with. Um, my family all the time is like, when are you going to move back home? When are you going to move back? <laughs> because I'm I'm living in New York. My parents live in Virginia and they um, – a lot of the times they'll be like, you know, it's really expensive in New York. You should move back to Virginia. <laughs> and uh, it's it's that kind of feeling of um, of – wanting to be close and uh, where the comfortable comfort is and having to have that support system between the two of you, support them and they support you. Uh, but the idea of, of making it on your own and, and forming your own life and identity is such a novel thing. And I think combining those two things of still keeping those ties, but per- being your own person is just such a wonderful ending that this movie comes to. Mm-hmm. I think so too. And I think that it's been really great how we've kind of tackled the the very, I guess, the intense and like the emotional aspects of Turning Red. But I also want to talk about like the very fun aspects of Turning Red. And this is probably going to be a conversation more for you two, but let's talk about anime. Yes. <laughs> oh, I, I wanted nothing more than to talk about like the superficiality of how this movie looks. <laughs> yes. So... This movie is, like, it looks nothing like, I mean, obviously there's, like, very Pixar-isms. Those will always exist. But the incorporation of anime into this movie, in particular, like, 90s anime, Mm -hmm. which was, you know, what what the director grew up on, um, is so prominent. And it just really adds, like, another level to this movie. So um, if either of you want to speak on on that, the floor is yours to geek out about anime. (laughs) All right, so when I first watched the trailer for Turning Red, my first thought went to, this is Ranma One Half, mm-hmm. uh, but as a Pixar film. And Ranma One Half, oh, little history lesson. This was actually <laughs> the first manga that I ever read. And it's a manga by Rumiko Takahashi. She is responsible for Inuyasha, uh, Maison Ikoku, and um, Ranma One Half is... <laughs> Kind of weird to say, it's basically a sex comedy mm-hmm. uh, slash martial arts comedy where the lead character, Ranma, he's a man who gets cursed uh, with turning into a woman whenever he's splashed by uh, cold water. And it becomes like a whole fun like sex comedy, a comedy of errors. Uh, he gets, um, he goes to high school, he often finds himself in a bizarre amount of situations where he's near water or splashed by water. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, oh, sorry, it's hot water that gets him turned into um, a girl, which is even more unlikely. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it's the idea of transforming into a different gender also has, like, its own sort of queer uh, roots, which I don't think the the, the author or the, the story actually has, like, totally uh, an idea of yet. But it's it's such a wonderful little transformation thing of course his his dad i think gets turned into a panda so there's that Mm -hmm. commonality as well and uh it has that 
that similarity of like, oh, not wanting to deal with that other identity of yourself, but then finally embracing it. Maybe he is half man, half woman, and that's a really fun, wonderful thing. And of course, other sort of shape-shifting animes that I think of, like Pompoko, the Studio Ghibli film, where a bunch of uh, raccoons uh, have the ability to change their ball sacks, um, use their ball sacks <laughs> to change into various shapes and use it to drive the humans that are tr- attempting to tear down their forest and turn it into buildings um, by scaring them all away, again, with their ball sacks that help them <laughs> transform into various like ghoulish things and ghosts and stuff. Uh, anime can get really funky sometimes. Um, but there's so many aspects of this. I think I actually read your piece, BJ, BJ where um, Domi, she talks about the anime uh, inspirations. She, she, t- she cites Rama one half, but she also cites Sailor Moon in terms of the depiction of female friendships. And that's one of my favorite things about Sailor Moon and the magical anime, magical girl anime in general, where mm-hmm. there are so many different shades of female friendships and female relationships. Not everyone likes each other. Everyone is so different, but everyone adds like their own separate color and trait to the whole group, making them to a big, strong, you know, sailor group and uh you know and what a wonderful thing about sailor moon was that they had a protagonist a heroine who was a crybaby and was weak and was um scared and and lazy and hungry all the time and Mm -hmm. that all those different flaws and facets made her an even more empathetic uh lead character as we see with may who made maybe not share all those traits with uh, Usagi or Serena, as you might know from the English dub Mm -hmm. um, or the American dub. But um, the idea of like a flawed character who still rises up to the occasion um, and has her group of pals to support her is very much drawn from Sailor Moon. The anime style, it adds, it makes it so much more, makes CG animation so much more versatile than what Mm -hmm. we've been seeing with Pixar and Disney, which has been steadily getting more into realism, almost to the point of being scarily realistic. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of CG animation has kind of come to a a plateau of sorts. It's kind of gotten to a rut. And I think that uh, drawing inspiration from anime, from other art styles, is kind of the future for CG animation. I think that's really exciting. We're seeing one side of it with Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse with that sort of graphic style. And we're seeing this other side with with anime. And um, and with Luca did the similar things with anime and stop motion animation and drawing inspiration from that and simplifying it versus going into more realism. So that's one facet that I found just like really exciting about turning red. It just makes it so much more energized and exciting and peppy. Oh, I just absolutely. went into a whole rant about anime. I'm very sorry. Oh, no, that's no, perfectly never fine. apologize. Oh, no, it's wonderful. <laughs> We've covered it like pretty much most of the animated films we've talked about on the show have been anime because that's been the medium that actually allows to tell like teen girl stories mm-hmm. um, is non-Western animation. So mm-hmm. we, we've gone on a couple anime rants. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I like purely aesthetically. I love this movie because it's unlike anything I've ever seen because of that, uh, because it uses all of these traditional anime tropes and styles and honestly just types of animation in a 3D medium. And that is so unique and fun because one thing I love about animation and one thing I kind of nitpick about a lot of more modern 3D animation is that I want you to justify it being animated. 
and don't just tell like a realistic story and you happen to use CG and you could have done the CG in live action because 90% of a lot of live action movies are just CG nowadays anyway. I want you to justify it being animated. This movie does it so well and in such a refreshing way because the characters are bouncy and lively and go off model sometimes in a way that makes them like have super exaggerated expressions and it feels so warm and alive and there's this feeling of probably a bit of nostalgia because I'm grew up watching a lot of anime in the 90s and early 2000s around this period I loved Inuyasha more than any 12 year old boy probably should have may have explained a few things about me same thing for Ranma again (laughs) maybe a little on the nose Inuyasha was my sexual awakening (laughs) right oh my goodness (sighs) so I I love all of that in terms of an animation but also just like in terms of like the color palette it's so bright and warm and has these very nice pastels um I especially love how this movie looks at night because it looks like how all of the night scenes in Sailor Moon look, Mm -hmm. which is such a pastel dream. Um, Specifically when they're at Tyler's party and they're on the roof and looking at the cityscape, it's like, oh my God, Toronto's never looked so good. Specifically with this color palette and like the blooming light. Oh my, just huge fan of, of that. And I think that the the decision to incorporate the anime elements, in addition to it just, it's so visually interesting, mm-hmm. it is the perfect way to describe kind of those big teenage emotions. Because when you're that age, everything is the biggest and worst and best thing that's ever happened to you. Everything is so huge. Like when they had the teaser trailer to this with Larger Than Life by the Backstreet Boys, like that is exactly what it is like everything you're feeling is larger than life Mm. so it makes sense that when you have abby screaming let's burn it to the ground that her (laughs) mouth is going to go all the way to her ears like that absolutely is going to happen or when you have like the moment where may jumps on her bed and it like horror movie zooms in on her and the light flashes and she's sweating and not blinking because she's so nervous and her pupils get really really pointed like the intensity of that emotion immediately heightens because the animation style is reflecting it like it's so perfect and it also just makes a lot of things look really really beautiful like when she is running to the concert and she's jumping between panda and may and panda and may Mm -hmm. and like using it to her advantage you get these like gorgeous shots of her like against the moon and it does look like sailor moon um (laughs) which is great but then like even when you end up in uh in in the in the sky dome and the aunties have their transformation. It is some like grade A anime bullshit. I love it so much. <laughs> and one of the ants absolutely Naruto runs, which is hilarious. <laughs> one of the things about animation that I feel like a lot of people don't appreciate is that the lim- there's no limit. The limit is your imagination. Mm-hmm. And I feel like with CG animation, because it's created by a computer, there are limits and that you have to work within those limits to, to make something as wild and envelope pushing as you could with hand-drawn animation and you see that with turning red because it uses it pushes the the boundaries of reality in a way that hand-drawn animation that anime could do and it does that with cg animation which which lends it this bounciness this heightenedness and it just feels like something so innovative and something that we've never seen before because it merges these two art styles anime that is so already so pushing the limits of reality um you see with so many animes that it just 
totally exaggerates characteristics, but also exaggerates what physics are. <laughs> and we actually get to see that in CG animation where there's so many CG animated movies these days which feel like they're bound to reality and this one is not. And that is really exciting. Like you were saying with the, they're going off model, with the colors are so vibrant, they're so big, they're so loud. And that does feel like, like being a teenage girl, I feel like there's very few movies that capture that feeling of feeling so much mm-hmm. as Turning Red does. And I wrote this I wrote this anecdote in my review for Turning Red where I, um, you know, I went to a Backstreet Boys concert as an adult and I kind of figured it would be a fun way to spend a lazy Saturday afternoon in the summer. And then they came on stage and the, those first notes of everybody came on and I felt like I was going through some sort of seizure because I felt like a roller coaster <laughs> of emotion just like ripping through my body. I felt like an adrenaline, a needle had, had been stuck into my chest and with full of adrenaline and I screamed and I felt like turning red was like that oh my gosh like there are a couple things that exist and they've both been animation turning red obviously but like i could not help but think of the boys for now episode of bob's burgers when louise is at the concert and she is trying so hard to act like she's cool and it's not a big deal and then boo boo shows up on stage and is like who let all these pretty girls in here and louise like loses it and just like can't handle it i'm like that is such like an innate feeling that i feel in my body and my soul and i got to admit because we we've got to talk about four town when jordan fisher hits that like double key change high note before the second uh, ritual starts in the sky dome I immediately turn into a 12-year-old girl again. Like, his wound a little bit, yeah. Oh, my God. Like, his voice is so magical. And it just, like, overwhelms me to the point where, like, I've been listening to the Four Town songs. They're written by Billie Eilish and Phineas. Like, they're they're great. But I've been specifically listening to the Pandas Unite, uh, No One Like You reprise, where they combine, like, the traditional Chinese singing with the pop music of the boy band because that's where he hits that money note. Because every time I hear it, I get goosebumps. And I'm like, oh, I like that feeling. I'm going to play this a bunch of times. I'm like, what does this say about me that I am a 30-plus-year-old adult but, like, you get me a good boy band singer and I'm still going to, like, turn into Jello. <laughs> like, it just – that's just who I am, I guess. I mean, I still love my – I still love the Backstreet Boys. I still love my K-pop boy band. So, you know, it never goes away. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm a huge boy band person. I love them. Uh, we will actually – listeners, we are going to be on American Hysteria talking about specifically – kind of the history of boy bands and how how they've changed culture um but we talked a lot about the the boy bands of the 90s and like kind of just like the hold they had on all of us and how uh you can trace it back to like hair metal and in in moving forward into emo and like how certain elements of like emo aesthetic and boy band aesthetic have led into like k-pop aesthetic and like how everything is sort of like pulling from each other i mean my sister just bought like four city tickets to bts shows because she's an adult with her own money and she can afford to do that and she's she's doing it she's thrilled about it she should um, do it and oh my god i'm so like she posted things like you know smart move drive to houston by yourself go see bts by yourself it's the best and like she looked like she had a great time i'm like you know what you knock yourself out you're an adult you can do these things and if it's gonna bring you that joy then do it i don't understand why we're making people feel weird for liking a boy band like they just are 
musicians and they're talented mm-hmm. and they're exciting to watch and the music is fun. Listen, I was on a trip to Japan. I was on vacation and I heard that Big Bang was uh, – performing in Fukuoka before they went on their military service. And I was in Tokyo and I was like, I'm flying to Fukuoka to see Big Bang. (laughs) Yes. Was it awesome? (laughs) It was amazing. I still have my (laughs) t-shirt from there. (laughs) That's incredible. (laughs) So Harmony, like, how do you feel about Fortown as somebody who like did not get bit by the boy band bug? And you were, were you, would you say you were averse to boy bands when you were younger or like, how would you describe it? I wouldn't say I was adverse to them. I would say like, oh, hey, I know like three singles by all of them. Mm -hmm. No, that's not true. Let's not get carried away and say all of them. I'd say like the three biggest ones. And then I know like one 98 degree song. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Like the bands of that. The one that played at the end of Mulan. Probably. I don't know. Are are they the ones that did the girls who like Abercrombie and No, that's LFO. Okay, never mind then. (laughs) Then yes, maybe I only won't know one ninety eight degree song. (laughs) Yeah, so you know true to your heart from the Mulan soundtrack. Probably, yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. I would say I knew maybe like three Backstreet and InSync songs respectively. Uh and, and then it just kind of goes down from there. So I wouldn't say I was adverse to them. I would just say like, I don't know, they I was like, This is fine. Mm-hmm. I would much rather listen to like Everclear <laughs> or Len or bas- basically the goofy summer jams rock bands of the time. Uh-huh. Honestly, as someone who uh has a big fondness for like Weedus and the new radicals. I appreciate a man in a bucket hat. Devin, you go. That was the first thing you said when we were watching it when the, you saw Devin and you were like, you know what? That is reminiscent of the new radicals. I like this look for him. Yeah. <laughs> so no, I wouldn't say I was adverse to boy bands. I just say they weren't super for me. I did get more into them later in like the mid 2000s mm-hmm. when like the Punk Goes Pop albums came out. Okay, yeah, that I owned all of them. Yeah. <laughs> so I understand that. I'd completely. say that was much more of my speed of a boy band. So how do you feel about like the four town music? It's good. It's fine. It's, it sounds like exactly what a boy band song sounds like in 2002. Yeah. It, <laughs> I like, Only I don't know if they ever hit screaming high notes quite that nicely. Yeah, I think I wrote I mean, in one if of If you were talking about like a few of them did, like Lance did and NSYNC, you know. I think I posted in, uh, so I did a list for Slash Film of like the gr- the greatest fake boy bands because that is a section of my brain that I can access. And I think I wrote in my review of, <laughs> for like why Four Town should be in there, of like that no one could <laughs> could hit the screaming high note quite like, uh, quite like Jordan Fisher as Robert and then apologize to JC Shazay because he hits the money note and bye bye bye, which is like, very nice, but Jordan <laughs> Fisher is unbelievable. <laughs> like, what a great get they got for him because he's fantastic. Um, so yeah, I completely understand why all of them would lose it for Four Town because they're great. And when you get that shot of them as like angels floating from the <laughs> from the top of it, all I could think about was being eleven years old. It was ten or eleven, whatever year it was, and uh, I got tickets to the No Strings Attached tour that my mom got me. And my like childhood best friend and I uh, went door to door to tell all of our neighbors we were going to see in sync, and half of them were like, "That's sweet, that's nice, dear," and the other half were like, "Go the fuck away! What are you doing?" <laughs> and we were super late to the show. We missed the opener. I don't remember who the opener was. It might have been Britney, and if like 
that's the case. I don't want to look it up and find out who I miss because I'll be devastated. <laughs> but we missed the opener and we missed like the first two songs because the Allstate Arena was so packed of people going to see in sync. But when we got there, they were doing like the second run, like in the marionette thing, they were flying and it was like the coolest thing I've ever seen. And I had like nosebleeds. Oh so God. for May and the friends to be like on the ground as they're coming up like angels, it's like, ah, jealous. <laughs> what I mean, a great it, time. It's the beautiful spectacle of any good stadium show, you know, mm-hmm. you're there for the spectacle. And mm-hmm. they have they have some great spectacle. <laughs> so does anyone have any last thoughts on Turning Red that they would like to mention before we wrap things up? Panda was adorable. Oh, oh my gosh, so yes. Adorable. Red pandas are so cute and the attention that they did to the to the actual creature like when May gets scared, she throws her arms up, which is yes. what red pandas do. Is so cute. <laughs> and then something that I learned from the Embracing the Panda mini doc that they put out is that uh, apparently pan- red pandas like sleep all day mm-hmm. and they eat bamboo not because they actually need it. They just like the taste of it, but it doesn't give them any sort of nutritional value at all. So they were like, red pandas are kind of like teenagers eating chips and sleeping all day. And I was like, what a perfect animal. <laughs> this is so, like just layers upon layers of why the red panda is great. And oh, no yeah. wonder May wanted to stay as one. It sounds like a great time. Absolutely. (laughs) And like you get to have like fluffy fur and you can be warm. Like that sounds great. (laughs) Yeah. Panda May is like painfully cute. And uh, they were advertising the stuff on like Lunchbox or Box Lunch. That's what it's called. Box Lunch is uh, doing like a turning red line. And there's all of these like stuffed panda maze and i'm like oh well there goes my paycheck because <laughs> i need one she can hang out with like appa on top of our record yeah you have an appa i, love I have it. an appa B- bj got really sad during the early stages of quarantine when she watched avatar for the first time it was not the first time it was the first time since childhood and i like purged it because i got made fun of for watching avatar yeah so uh well, then whoever she... made fun of you is an idiot yeah they're, they're losers bunch, right they're a bunch of avatar's losers amazing but bj <laughs> got really sad when Appa got got bison napped and was crying and Impulse bought an Appa from the internet. <laughs> that is one of the most devastating episodes of television of all time, honestly. <laughs> it is so cruel how sad that episode was. And I, like, for the record, I was, like, stone sober. This was not, like, drinking in quarantine or getting high in quarantine and impulse buying on the internet. I was so upset that Appa got kidnapped that I had to buy my own so that I could protect him and make sure he never got kidnapped. That's what had to happen. Being the loving spouse that I am, I definitely took a picture of BJ mid cry and she's like, you can't post that. I'm ugly crying. (laughs) It's like full ugly cry. It's not cute. It's real bad. I was really devastated. Also, I found out today that ColourPop is the cosmetics company is about to have an avatar line soon and i'm gonna buy all of it so there's that too (laughs) oh wonderful well i think that that kind of takes us out a bit on turning red just a magnificent film that i hope everybody sees and should see and hopefully it'll help you not only heal your inner 13 year old but also heal you know a little bit of your feelings with maybe your own family uh because it's just beautiful but um hoi chan where can people find you on the internet if you want them to find you well if you want to find me i'm on twitter at htranbui uh i'm also at instagram at htranbui and you can find me writing 
not every day, but every now and then at slashfilm.com. Beautiful. And friends, you can find the show as always on Twitter and Instagram at This Ends at Prom. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at BJ Colangelo. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor. Velosa underscore trap underscore tour. And as always, humongous thank you to the Sonderbombs for allowing us to use their song title as our theme song. Harmony, what cool indie band that is fitting for turning red do you want people to check out this week? So I had to do a little a little digging through my brain to be like, okay, um, I'm not going to find something with like the bombast and production of a 2000s era boy band right. on like the <laughs> indie scene, at least right. not that I know of. So I kind of just went in like a, a slightly different direction, but definitely fit the theme for this. So the band I want to shout out is a, a synth pop duo called Powder Paint. They are very queer, use a lot of pastel makeup and hair and drawings and, il- and illustrations in their sort of aesthetic. Mm-hmm. They uh, fit very comfortably into like an 80s synth pop or like a late 90s, early 2000s Euro dance group, but with not quite as much like DDR vibes. Okay. Uh, they do an amazing cover of Spectrum by Florence and the Machine, but as far as their original songs go, I think Fall Together and Ego are incredible, and you should check them out because not nearly enough people know about this very queer group. Awesome. All right, friends, that takes us out until next week. We will see you then, and as always, save that last dance for us. Bye. Bye. Is it a fever? A stomachache? Chills? Constipation? Wait, is it that? Did the... Did the red peony bloom? No! Maybe? (gasps) This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.